Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It is Monday, March 22, and today on The Briefing, we'll brief you on the PNG COVID situation. This is a country that has a health system that is so fractured and is constantly on the point of total collapse. The COVID explosion right on our northern border in just a moment on The Briefing. Uh, First, I'm joined by Katrina Blowers. Hello, Katrina. G'day, Tom. Great to be back with you. Now, given the weather situation over the weekend, how did that bike ride go for you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I was meant to do a 130k bike race through the southern highlands, but... um, not surprisingly, completely cancelled. It got postponed last year because of COVID. Then there was oh, a heat wave. No. Now a flood. Oh, this bike ride is jinxed. Yeah. <laughs> I actually did not go outside my apartment for the whole weekend. Not even once. I think that is wise. And yeah. I think you probably want to bunker down for the next couple of days as well. Yeah, all right. Well, that leads our news bulletin. Let's get into it. Well, the Sydney flooding situation is unfortunately expected to worsen. Sydney's experiencing a once-in-a-50-year flood. As many as a 1,000 residents in Western Sydney have been ordered to evacuate now. Thousands more, Tom, are expected to follow in coming days. It's really about locals and community members keeping an eye around their surroundings, keeping an eye um, on those local places that they know that flood. Yeah, it's been an incredible weather event. I thought to myself... I've never seen flooding like this in Sydney before. And I checked the records and I was right. This is the worst flood since 1961, so literally once in 50 years. That was Josh McLaren from the New South Wales SCS this morning. So the Nepean Hawkesby rivers are breaking their banks. That happened overnight following the days of heavy rain uh, in Sydney and, of course, on the mid-north coast. Sydney's Warragamba Dam um, feeds into those rivers and it's been overflowing since Saturday when it reached capacity. Yeah, the the pictures are just extraordinary. And seeing uh, a police car being washed away into Mm. floodwaters as well was really quite shocking. More rain is expected. Parts of Sydney could see up to another 150 mils over the next couple of days. Tonight and tomorrow morning are those real critical times for triggering further river rises. And that's because two weather systems are predicted to collide. Yeah, and a few hours up the coast from Sydney on the mid-north coast, it's really bad. They're having a once-in-100-year flooding event. Uh, Residents of Kempsey on the mid-north coast of New South Wales were evacuated uh, last night. And some parts of the mid-north coast have received over 400 mils of rain since Thursday. And that whole stretch of coast from Port Macquarie through to the Tweed is going to be the focus of emergency services over the next couple of days as rivers threaten to break their banks there with more rain forecasts there too. And Katrina, you're in Brisbane. How's it looking up in Queensland? Look, it's been pretty steady here since about lunchtime on Sunday. That same weather system wreaking havoc in the southeast of Queensland. It's causing some pretty grim flash flooding around the Gold Coast. Some roads have washed away. Uh, Beaches are closed from around the Sunshine Coast south to the border and emergency alerts have been issued for many parts of the GC. Yeah, all right. We'll keep watching this wild weather event over the next few days um, because it's expected to keep raining until Wednesday. Well, six million more Aussies are now eligible for the COVID-19 vaccine, but not us yet, Tom. (laughs) Too young? (laughs) Thankfully, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I know, right? Yeah, so phase 1B is getting underway. It's for people aged 70 and over, Indigenous Australians over 55, and critical workers like police and people with underlying medical conditions. They're all eligible for this stage of the rollout. We do call on all Australians to be patient. Uh, let, Let your GP contact you. 
And for those of you who don't have a GP, uh, you're certainly uh, going to have access to the vaccine through the Commonwealth Respiratory Clinics and hopefully also state-run vaccination centres. That was the AMA president, Dr Omar Korshid. Now, this phase of the rollout really hinges on local production here of the AstraZeneca vaccine at the CSL facility. And in some good news there, that got the tick of approval from the Therapeutic Goods Administration just last night, and it is about to roll into production. Very soon we're going to see our local production uh, becoming available, uh, hopefully the next few days. And that means Australia will be assured of having Uh, enough supply to get everyone in the country vaccinated against this terrible disease. Well, we're on the edges of our seats watching that um, production (laughs) facility rollout, given how chaotic it's been in Europe. Last week, we reported on the AstraZeneca vaccine rollout being paused in Europe over blood clot concerns. And then on Friday, Katrina, um, most of those European countries resumed their rollout after the European Medicines Association released the results of their investigation that found that people who'd had the vaccine had no greater chance of blood clots than the general population. Yeah, that's a big relief for a lot of people who are mm. getting the jitters about the vaccine. And also this um, local production of the vaccine will be great because apparently a lot of GP clinics around the country have only been getting something like 40 vaccines a week. So people mm. have been rocking up trying to get vaccinated and they just haven't had the numbers. So hopefully we'll be able to see that rollout really pick up speed over the next few weeks. Yeah, and an Australian couple in Myanmar have been stopped from leaving the country and confined to their home. DFAT says they're supporting Matthew O'Kane and Krista Avery, who work in the country as business consultants. And that's after Miss Avery was stopped from boarding a flight on Friday. And she was then ordered to stay at home with her husband. She says she was given no reason why. Yeah, it's a bit of a blow to the efforts of the Australian federal government because uh, they're already trying to help fellow Australian Sean Turnell. He's the academic who was an advisor to Aung San Suu Kyi. He's been locked up along with Aung San Suu Kyi since the military took over the country last month. It is just such a devastating situation to watch, isn't it, Tom? Uh, Protests against last month's coup have continued. Some of them um, have been without people. They've just been putting placards in place because they've been fired upon with not just rubber bullets, but live rounds of ammunition. Around 247 protesters now believed to have been killed since that coup began. Yeah, it's devastating after that country had so much hope years ago when Aung San Suu Kyi was released after doing many years under house arrest and was moving the country towards democracy. It just seems to be turning to absolute chaos, deadly chaos, unfortunately. All right, thanks, Katrina. We'll catch you again tomorrow. Uh, Jan Fran's going to join us as we look at the situation unfolding just to our north in Papua New Guinea. Today we're briefing you on the unfolding COVID catastrophe in Papua New Guinea. How bad is it? And what should we, their nearest neighbour, be doing to help? They're our family, they're our friends, they're our neighbours, they're our partners. They have always stood with us and we will always stand with them. This is in Australia's interests and is in our region's interests. So to take you back to the start of this story, um, Papua New Guinea had been tracking really well with COVID. According to official figures, there were no massive outbreaks last year. Then there was Mm. a small wave in August. And then back to single figures on daily COVID cases until just three weeks ago, Jan, when the daily cases started to really spike. 
And over the weekend, there were 400 new cases, which means they now have a total of 3,000 active cases. In Papua New Guinea, they've had 55,000 tests done in the last 12 months. As an example, in Victoria, during the, the peak of COVID for us, we were seeing about 40,000 tests a day. So we need to increase the testing. That was the head of World Vision Australia, Daniel Wordsworth, there. Now, in response to the spike in cases now, uh, we have suspended travel to and from Papua New Guinea. You fi or you fo. Um, if you're there, you, you stay. If you're here, you stay. Um, we cannot risk more people going into those areas and then coming back to Australia. Yeah, this comes as a record number of cases in Queensland's hotel quarantine were traced back to Papua New Guinea as well. So everybody being super cautious, as well as taking those precautions, um, Australia has also stepped in to help. We're sending 8,000 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine to PNG. This is mainly to vaccinate frontline health workers. So Australia has already sent 8,000 doses of the COVID-19 vaccine to PNG. This is to vaccinate frontline healthcare workers. Scott Morrison has also requested a further 1 million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine to send specifically to PNG. And this is in addition to millions of PPE items, which include things like masks, gowns and ventilators. So to find out more about what's happening on the ground in PNG, we've got Dr Gideon Candino joining us. He works at the COVID-19 National Control Centre in Port Moresby, where they coordinate the multi-agency response to COVID. Gideon, thanks for joining us. How worried are you about the situation unfolding there? I've had first-hand experience with uh, COVID-19 situation. My daughter actually works at the Port uh, Moresby General Hospital as one of the emergency physicians. I see how stressed out she is every day and trying to manage the situation there. I think about 40% of her colleagues, both nursing and medical staff, becoming um, infected and so they have to um, be isolated. And so that's putting a big strain on uh, the workforce. Wow, 40% of doctors and nurses at this one hospital in Papua New Guinea have been infected with COVID-19. Is that is that what you're saying? That's what I was told by the uh, uh, CEO of the hospital in, our, in one of our briefings yesterday. So how is the health system coping here? Uh, it's really stretched to the limits in terms of uh, Port Moresby General Hospital. Um, I believe uh, our second largest hospital uh, in our largest province in population size um, was um, either shut down or closed to emergencies uh, last week while they reassess themselves. So if that happens, that's serious. What is your biggest fear here? How bad could the situation get? The biggest thing is the uh, mindset change of the population. Majority of them are still still sceptical. Majority of the population don't have access to the mainstream media or social media, and so they really don't appreciate the potential for COVID-19 to be devastating. Within that scenario, people are really, really not educated as such. What should Australia be doing here, Doc? I can ask for more. One, they've um, offered to bring in a emergency medicine team up for OSMAP, uh, the Australian taxpayers, uh, the government are actually assisting in trying to manage um, this devastating situation by sending in both um, 
staff as well as um, vaccine and also um, masks and, and other accessories to assist with the situation. So, so thank you very much. That was Dr Gideon Candino speaking to us from Port Moresby. Um, Kate Lyons has been following this closely. She's the Guardian, Australia's uh, Pacific editor. Kate, what concerns you most about the unfolding situation in PNG? Well, the situation we're seeing in PNG is exactly what people have been fearing for over a year now when it comes to COVID, which is that this is a country that has a health system that is so fractured and is constantly on the point of total collapse, just dealing with the health crises that PNG already has. So to add COVID in on top of this, people have been warning since COVID, you know, we knew what COVID was, that if it were to hit Papua New Guinea, it would absolutely devastate the health system, overwhelm the health system and potentially be catastrophic for the population. So is that happening? Are they already overwhelming the health system with this recent wave? What we're hearing is the impact is really hitting um, when you have doctors and nurses who are testing positive for COVID and therefore have to go home. So it's not the case that we've got everybody in the country has COVID and there are no beds for them, though it is that's happening more and more in Port Moresby, but that as doctors and nurses are treating people with COVID, don't have the PPE to treat them, don't have the space to separate them out, they're contracting it, they then have to go home. And then you're looking at a workforce in hospitals that's, you know, skeleton staff to manage everything else that they've struggled to deal with to this point with a full staff. So you've got 30%, we were hearing earlier this week um, from the maternity ward section of Port Moresby General Hospital, 30% of their staff have tested positive for COVID. And so you've now got people who are trying to, doing these hectic long shifts, understaffed sort of rosters, still trying to deliver the babies and keep women safe and do all the other things that hospitals have to do while their staff are being knocked out with COVID. So before this recent wave, Kate, how had PNG been tracking with COVID? Oh, it's really interesting because they saw their first case really early on. So their first confirmed case was back in February of 2020. So kind of at the beginning of things. And then their first local case was a month later in March. And I remember when that happened, we ran a story in The Guardian. We had a brilliant local reporter in East New Britain where the case was. And there was just absolute terror in the community at the thought that COVID had arrived. And especially among the doctors, the doctors and nurses walked out of the hospital when they learnt from a press conference from the Prime Minister that they'd been treating a COVID patient. They they hadn't been told that until that point. Wow. There was such fear. And one of, I remember the nurses uh, were discussing who would treat this patient. There was a suspected case in another hospital and their nurses had a discussion. And eventually one of them said, it's okay, I will sacrifice my life and be the one who cares for this patient. Like it was a real absolute terror of how it would go. And then the worst didn't appear to eventuate. So they sort of bumbled along at about a thousand cases, sort of on a low simmer for most of last year. Not many deaths, but all of that is um, with the huge caveat that testing is so low in the country. At the mm. moment, there are I had a rough, roughly about 55,000 tests. The testing rate's so low that many experts say, you know, it's anyone's guess what the real rate of community transmission is, what the real rate of infection is, and uh, that you could sort of add a zero to the end of any number you see, and that could be more accurate. So how much help should we be giving in this instance? I mean, we are PNG's closest neighbour. What's our responsibility here? 
I think we should be giving an enormous amount of help and as quickly as possible. It's one of those problems where by the time you're having the conversation about a catastrophic outbreak, it's almost too late, but it, it is really great that Australia is stepping up now. So what's the risk that it jumps across to Australia, either via the Torres Strait or, or via flights between our countries? So there's always been a lot of movement between the islands, but since COVID, they have really cracked down on that and stopped the free movement and policed that pretty strongly. So where is the vaccine rollout in PNG? How much vaccine have they had access to and and what's likely to happen? They haven't had the vaccine yet at all. They were able to acquire doses through the COVAX program, which um, yeah assists lower income countries to get access to it. So they were able to get um, 70,000 doses from India and 200,000 from Australia, but they weren't due to come until sometime in April. So, I mean, that could be in a couple of weeks or it could be six weeks' time. And this is a sort of emergency rollout that we're going to see from Australia. They've taken, I believe, 8,000 doses from Australia, which I think the aim is to roll them out within the next uh, few days, week. Yeah, Australia's requested a million doses of the AstraZeneca vaccine from the EU that were going to come to Australia that instead be diverted to P&G and go there first, which is a really great move, I think. Hey, what about the China vaccine? China have offered their vaccine to P&G. Are they going to take that up and should they? That's really interesting. I mean, P&G have been wary about taking up the China vaccine and wary about how safe and effective it is. But you know, an increasing number of countries. I think it's almost 70 countries have accepted the Sinovac Chinese vaccine. Um, and, you know, I, I saw today a couple of prominent Australian epidemiologists were saying that it looks like it's pretty safe and PNG should go for it. China's certainly been offering that for a while and we know that PNG and China are establishing quite a strong friendship, so they may well take that up. That was Kate Lyons, the Guardian Australia's Pacific editor there. Yeah, I'll be really interested to see if they do accept the China vaccine. Um, I guess the, the broader backstory there is that Australia has often been, you know, the country that's given the most support to a country like Papua New Guinea in this part of the world. But China has increasingly been moving to support countries in the Asia Pacific. And I think if we've really learned anything from this virus over the last year, it's just that you've got to be vigilant all day, every day, and just because you've been tracking really well, that doesn't mean you'll continue to do so, unfortunately. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we explore a new idea that could actually help victims of sexual assault find justice. Listener.